Father, we pray for the search that this church is engaged in, for who may pastor in the future. We pray, Father, that man being prepared by you even now would come to the foreground soon. These uh, men and women here would know who that person is, and they'd feel that movement in their own hearts to know and embrace that person. We pray that uh, he and his family, if he has family, would be prayerful in their own time, thinking about where you want them to go, that you'd be directing them. And Father, we pray that this church will continue as it has for so long to be a light in this corner of the city teaching your word. That's what we care for the most, Father, that, that this body of believers continued, uh, would continue to be strengthened, would continue to be a, a witness, Father, that you would uh, continue to keep them in your care. And finally, Father, we pray for this study. Though we're finishing it prematurely, it is according to your will and in your timing. And so we accept, Father, that for whatever reason you chose to bring us this far, but no further, at least not for now. And so, Father, show us how you want us to finish this part of the story, Father, how we're going to understand it and use it for what we know of it. And then, Father, of course, bring us back to this book at a time that's right. And this morning in particular, Father, I'd like to ask that you would speak through me for these men and women to hear from you and not from me, that the word today, Father, would be yours, not mine that we would all embrace it so that we may follow you in greater obedience, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm often annoyed by the way the world will portray devout Christians in the movies. I don't know if this is a pet peeve of mine or if anybody else shares this. You know what I'm talking about, right? The cool Christians in the movies are the ones who don't take their religion too seriously. They're vaguely religious. They keep their beliefs to themselves. They celebrate tolerance. They will embrace other religions. They even enjoy a little sin once in a while just so that they don't look too different from the rest of the crowd, right? That's the cool Christian as far as Hollywood is concerned. But then there's those evil, wacky Christians in the movies. They're the ones who actually believe the Bible. They're the ones who actually live according to what the Bible says. They talk openly about the need to forgive one another and for the need of God's forgiveness. Otherwise, the future is the reality of hell. And we insist that unless you're born again by faith in Jesus Christ, you cannot see heaven for he is the only way. We're the bad Christians, according to the movies. Of course, we know what's really going on here, right? That's a spiritual battle. What you're seeing is the enemy seeking to silence the gospel through any means necessary, including the culture of the movies, and to neutralize the witness of true believers. The world hypocritically calls for tolerance, but then they'll only tolerate the Christians who hide their Christianity. They demonize Christians who actually live out their faith because our witness prompts in them a conviction and a fear that we might be accurate, that there is actually a judgment coming. And so they try to silence us through intimidation. And yet, ungodly people will often find comfort in association with the godly when things are going badly for them. We suddenly become an insurance policy for them against whatever bad things have come upon them. We're like a lucky charm. So that when things go wrong, they ask us, would you say a prayer for me? Have you ever had that happen? From someone that you know is as far from God as anyone could be. But suddenly... Your prayer life matters to them. Or they may desire your friendship or your counsel because they feel that you're closer to God than they are. You can provide some kind of protection. You ever heard them come up to you and say, put in a good word with the man upstairs for me? 
like it works that way, like we can recommend them. (laughs) It's superstition, but it's born out of an ignorance of who God is and how you can actually find a relationship with God. The misconception I'm describing here is not new, even though it's certainly new, at least in the way it's being portrayed in modern media. That's new, maybe. But the misconception itself is not new. It's always existed among the ungodly and the unbelieving of the world. And you'll see that perception, that misconception at work today in chapter 14 of Ezekiel among the people of Israel. Last week when we studied the fourth excuse that Israel uses, that excuse that the leaders of Israel were personally responsible for the nation's idolatry, and therefore the people said, well, we have no reason to fear the word of the prophet because God's judgment's only going to fall on the leaders. They're the ones who caused all of this. Remember that excuse? Well, the people were saying they thought they'd be spared from the judgments that Ezekiel was promising to them merely because they said, well, we're just following the examples of our elders. And so they just ignored the prophet's warnings. They just went on sinning. That's the fourth excuse in these eight excuses that are in these chapters, 12 through 19 of Ezekiel. Last week when we studied this, we saw God declaring that that excuse was invalid, of course. And he did it by calling all Israel to repent personally, or all Israel will experience the judgment. God said his mercy was available to all without a respect for who you were, that is, if you repented. But likewise, he said his judgment would fall on everyone who failed to repent of their idolatry, regardless of who they were. So the fourth excuse exposed a bias within the people of Israel, a false understanding of how God actually works. They assumed that the behavior of one person could be the basis for God's relationship to an entire group of people. They thought that the Lord would let judgment fall from their knee, their sin. That judgment would fall on just one person, so to speak, on just the leaders. But in the same way, they made a reverse assumption. The reverse assumption was that the good behavior of one person, one particularly godly one within the group, might be cause for God to overlook the sin of the many. You see how it works both ways. The sin of the many could fall on the one, oh, but the righteousness of the one could be credited to the many. Well, they have, in one sense, the right idea. They just have the wrong person in mind as they think about that. And it became an excuse for their sin. So in the first half of this chapter, the Lord set right this misconception by saying, no, everybody's going to be held accountable. In the second half of the chapter, he corrects the other half of that misconception that somehow a righteous person could save the group. So in the second half of the chapter, we're going to explain, he explains that another's righteousness does us no good, not in human terms. We pick up Ezekiel fourteen twelve. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, And I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, cut off from it both man and beast. Even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. And if I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts... Though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. Or, if I should bring a sword on that country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. 
Or, if I should send a plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood on it, to cut off man and beast from it, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or daughter, they would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more... When I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. So the Lord opens up saying, let's suppose we find a country, oh, I don't know, let's just call it Israel. And what if this country sins against me in unfaithfulness? You know, like, let's say, to the old covenant, to the law. What if they disobey the law? Well, then he says, I would stretch out my hand against them. In response, he says, he'll bring various calamities against the land. Now look at those calamities for a second. He says, the calamities include four categories of disaster. He summarizes them at the end, sword, famine, wild beast, and plague. Well, in verse 13, he starts by describing the famine, such that it would cut off man and beast. Then in 15, he describes the wild attacks, or the attacks by wild animals that run the people out of the land. Um, Those two actually seem to go together when you think about it. I mean, if there's a famine in the land and the animals can't find food either, we become food. So they probably go together. Then verse 17, the Lord warns of a war that will devastate the country. And then finally in 19, the plague. And the plague leaves it so that no one's in the land alive. Now, those seem like a kind of odd combination of of plagues or, or of disasters, right? Where did these four come from? Well, they're uniquely specific And they're intended to draw your attention back into the law itself because these are the four disasters that God promised Israel would suffer in Leviticus should they ever disobey the covenant. So that's why he starts with if at the beginning. It's it's meant to be ironically rhetorical. He's not saying this is theoretical. He's intentionally reminding them, I warned you this is exactly what would happen. Specifically in Leviticus 26. The Lord promised these outcomes to the people as penalty for disobedience and unfaithfulness to the covenant. I'm just going to jump to the various passages within 26 that mention these four plagues. Okay, you'll hear them. So in Leviticus 26, 14, he says, But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so as not to carry out all my commandments and so break my covenant... I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever, that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away, and also you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. Verse 21. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children and destroy your cattle and reduce your number so that your roads lie deserted. Verse 25. I will also bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together in your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. And I will break your staff of bread. Ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts so that you will eat and not be satisfied. That's just part of the curses that God pronounces against Israel for failure to keep a covenant that they all voluntarily agreed to keep. And you find all four types of those calamities that Ezekiel is mentioning. So those curses were part of the law. 
They were part of what God promised to do for Israel. In other words, this is an agreement in which Israel made certain promises and God made certain promises. It's the only two-way covenant between God and people in the Bible. Every other covenant God makes is one way. He pledges things. He asks nothing in return. This is the one time in which a group of people have a covenant where they have a responsibility to do certain things. And the way the covenant worked is, if they did the right things, they got good responses from God. If they did the wrong things, it didn't break the covenant. It just meant that God then gave them the bad things in response. And that's what God was saying he was going to do here through Ezekiel. He reminds them here that he's simply acting in a way that is consistent with his own word. He's reminding them that though they have been faithless to this covenant, he's going to be faithful to his covenant. Because he is a covenant-keeping God. And remember, the old covenant was a national covenant, which means it obligated all the people of that nation to act according to its demands. If the entire nation obeyed the covenant, then the entire nation received all the promises. If the entire nation was not faithful to the covenant, the entire nation saw all the curses. It was an all-or-nothing arrangement. It was not applied individually. It didn't matter what one Jew did, It mattered what all the Jews did. And the proof of this, by the way, is the fact that you see now all of Israel going into exile, including the good people like Daniel, like Ezekiel. It did not matter that they were individually doing the right thing. The nation as a whole was being judged because the nation as a whole failed to keep the covenant. So God is just doing what he promised. But then he moves to making his point concerning those who were righteous within them. And you notice in verse 14, he says, even if... Three especially godly men were living among the rest of Israel. Nevertheless, he said, my judgments would still come against Israel. And he names three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And you know by those names, he's speaking hypothetically. The principle is true no matter what. But his example is hypothetical. And of course, we know that because these guys didn't live at the same time in history. There was never a point in time when all three of them could have been in the same place anyway. So he has selectively chosen historical figures and pulled them together to make a point. So Noah lived thousands of years earlier. Job lived hundreds of years earlier. And Daniel was still alive when this was being written. By the way, the fact that Ezekiel mentions Daniel here is interesting for one reason. It refutes those who tell you that Daniel's book was written long after the events that are predicted in the book. That's one of the critics' views of Daniel. They'll tell you Daniel was not written by Daniel. It was written hundreds of years later, looking back on the events. And they say that because Daniel's book is so accurate that the only way they can explain it away, other than saying it's prophecy, the only way they can explain it away is to say it was written after the fact. Those who would try to tear down the authenticity of Scripture. But here you have a man who was his contemporary saying that he was alive in that day. Anyway, moving back to the text. God chose these three men from Israel's history to make a point. And the point he's making is that one man's righteousness has no bearing on another man's fate in this case. For example, Noah Now, we know Noah's story. Every kid generally knows the story of Noah and the flood, at least at some level. And the Bible clearly says he was a righteous man. But when the flood came, Noah's righteousness didn't save the rest of the world. The rest of the world went down the drain, literally, while Noah floated in safety. And then Daniel. Daniel was a righteous man. But his righteousness did not save the nation of Israel when Babylon came to town and hauled them all off to exile, did he? And then Job. Job was a righteous man, but his righteousness couldn't even save his own family. 
who all died at the hands of the enemy in the story of Job. So that's the reason these names are put in that progression. They're actually not put in chronological order. They're put in order of this greater to least. One man couldn't save the world, another man couldn't save a nation, another man couldn't save his family. The point being, if those guys couldn't save those who were even closest to them, namely Job's family or Daniel in in Israel, if if that didn't work, well, then it's not going to work ever. It can't work, right? An upright man can't save the world or a nation or even his own family. The righteousness that you and I depend on for our salvation is only able to save us. Our own personal worth or value cannot save someone else. And there are a few principles of Scripture that could be more important than this one, honestly. Particularly in an evangelistic conversation where you might be trying to influence somebody else for the sake of Christ. This principle is never going to be exceeded by any other. That is, we are each accountable to God. We are each accountable to God. No matter how good someone is, that person can never be cause for God to overlook another person's sin. So you may have an especially godly mother or father, or you may be married to an especially godly spouse. You may be best friends with Billy Graham, or you may be the guy who gets to shine the Pope's shoes every morning, or you may mow your pastor's lawn, or I don't know how, you know, these associations we create in our head that somehow make us feel better about ourselves because we're close to this person or we have an affiliation with that person. None of that matters to God one bit. None of it counts for anything. When you stand before God for your judgment, your mom's not there. Your wife, who always goes to church while you watch football, she won't be there putting in a good word for you. In fact, she probably wouldn't want to put in a good word for you, and if you ask her, don't depend on it. We know this. I mean, as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, none of this should be news to anybody in this room. For you who not find this newsworthy, look at it from this point of view. Understand this is what other people think. There are people who think exactly like this. There are people who don't understand the gospel, don't understand the Bible, who are resting in the fact that someone close to them is godly and somehow, in ways that we don't quite understand, they feel like that's good enough for them. They feel some satisfaction in that. They need to see things honestly. We need to help them appreciate how the real judgment works. There is only one relationship that you and I can have that pays dividends for us at the judgment moment. And that's the relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only one that matters. Jesus is the one true righteous man, the one man who never sinned. And because he was perfect, he pleased God the Father. No other human being can make that claim. No other human being, from Adam to you or me, can make the claim that we've lived so well, so perfectly, that we please God the Father. There is no such person apart from Jesus Christ. If we hope to be saved from judgment by some relationship, we better pick the right one. And the only one that works is the one you have with Jesus Christ because He's the only one who can put in a good word for you, so to speak, with the Father. He's the only one whose word matters because someone who is less than perfect has nothing to say on your behalf. They're already in trouble themselves. If they have nothing to depend on except themselves, if they do not put their own faith in Christ, they have nothing to offer you either. Not even Noah or Job or Daniel was good enough to do that for someone else. So placing faith in Christ results in God the Father crediting you with Christ's perfection. And God counts His death as the payment you needed to make 
for your sin. That's the association that pays dividends. That's the gospel, as you know. Ironically, that's what made Noah and Daniel and Job righteous. Not their own goodness, but their own faith in that promised Messiah is how they got to be righteous as well. They're in no different a boat. Not to make a pun on Noah, but they're in no different... I'm not that smart enough to actually think of those in advance. In verse 20, the Lord says that these three men were delivered. Notice in verse 20, he says they were delivered by their own righteousness. Here again, though, don't read that as they were delivered by their own goodness. He's saying they were delivered by their faith in Christ, which then presented them with his righteousness. And that salvation, it's non-transferable. It's non-transferable. Notice the Lord repeats that conclusion three times. Just to make sure that no one misses it. Just for emphasis, in verses 14, 16, and again in verse 20, he says these men could not even save their own children. Noah and Daniel and Job needed a Savior too. And you can have what they have by faith in Christ. That's the same offer to everyone. In fact, if these three men had been living in the city of Jerusalem at this time, at the same time, if that could even have been possible, what God says in the end there, that passage I read in verse 21, He says it only would have made the judgment against the city all the more appropriate. Because you think about it for a minute. The Lord says, how much more would he then send his four judgments against the city if those three guys were in the city? Because what he's saying is, if Noah and Daniel and Job were living in the midst of the city, they'd be preserved, right, because of their righteousness. But after preserving them, after moving them out of the way, then he would say, how much more should the remainder of the city then be judged as a result? It'd be like saying, rather than uh, saving the city, these men would only serve to convict the city all the more by their godly example. God's saying, if you got three guys in the city that you respect and think are so upright, and that's what you're depending on, then you should have been like them. If they're so great, if you think they're your solution, why aren't you emulating them? It only makes your own judgment all the more necessary. That's a very interesting insight, and I would offer you or suggest you that you think about ways to bring that to someone's mind in a kind way, obviously. You don't want to offend them. That kind of defeats the whole purpose. But if you've got one of these people in your life who are depending on someone else's righteousness, and they don't even really know that they're doing it, it may not even be something they can articulate, but you sense it in them. They're kind of depending on the fact that they're, they're in a family of good people, or they've got a good spouse who kind of carries the load for them and their family when it comes to religious things. You need to help them understand that all that person is doing is highlighting their need for judgment. That they are all the more worthy of it because they have such a good example in their life and yet it's not making the right impression on their heart. You need to help people get past that self-deception. To quote Jesus in Luke 18, 19, he said, There is no one good but God alone. Therefore, none of us have any spare righteousness that we can offer to somebody else. We all obtained it the same way, by faith. And that righteousness was not of our own anyway. It was Christ's righteousness given to us. So you don't have anything to give to anybody else except the gospel, which is the means for them to find righteousness. Yet among the unbelieving world, people still think this is what God does. As I said, the world thinks that they can earn God's approval one way or another. And conveniently, they all think the standard for heaven is just low enough that they can get over the line with just a little effort. And so when they come across someone who's especially devoted to serving God, they all assume that person has a little excess of heavenly credit. They are doing way more than is required. That's, By the way, that's another insight for you into how these people think. Because they've set the bar for entry low enough that they feel like they can get there, when you're way above that, 
They think you're like working on extra credit. You're that kid that blows the curve. You know, you're the one that they're like, slow down a bit. You know, you're not helping us. And so they assume, I think this is part of the logic. Again, if they haven't articulated it, it's buried in their mind. They're thinking that this guy, this gal is so much holier than what you really have to be, than the rest of us are trying to be. They've got to have some, you know, extra to offer me. They're like my insurance policy for heaven. I can always say when I get to the gate that I knew so-and-so. And, you know, that'll let me in. I mean, I know that seems trivial and silly, but you would be shocked, I think, at how often people's mind goes to these things when they think about heaven. Because, you know, if it went to anything more deep, anything more serious or biblically rooted, they wouldn't like what they find. Coming out of my own personal background, I can tell you that thinking lies at the heart of Catholics' belief in saints, in the way they deify people and call them saints. They teach that certain people, who they call saints have lived such a commendable life that they merit excess favor with God. And so that excess merit can be shared with others, and that's why Catholics pray to saints. They are seeking that saint's favor and some kind of heavenly transfer of credit. And that's the theology that Catholics espouse. So when things begin to go wrong for a Catholic, they turn to those spiritual all-stars, and they say, give me a little bit of your goodness. And that superstition is also evident in personal relationships. Have you noticed how unreligious people will sometimes ask you to perform religious ceremonies for them because they don't know how to do them? They don't understand if there's some mystical thing about them? Like in my family, I always see this every year about this time. Because if we ever sit down for Christmas or Thanksgiving dinners, the family I came from is not religious at all, doesn't even pretend to be. They call themselves Catholic, but that's about the extent of it. And so they never bother praying I think at all, for the most part, but certainly not at meals. That's not something they do. Except when I'm at the table, and it's a holiday. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not walking around, you know, saying we need to pray. I mean, I don't care. I mean, you know, this is not like I expect them to care about these things. I'm not making a big deal out of it. I just sit down to eat. In fact, honestly, as awkward as that moment usually is, I'd rather just skip the prayer and go right to the food, frankly. But we'll do this every... I'm I'm telling you it's coming. I can feel it already. We're going to sit down at the table. It's all laid out. I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to look at everybody like this. And they're all going to go like this. And they all look so helpless. It's like they can't eat until I do my thing. And it's kind of this funny moment of power and and awkwardness. and, And why am I the only one who can do it? Because I'm the spiritual one in the family, so of course God hears my prayers. You know, there's this... And of course, that's like the least favorite prayer I say every year. Because the whole thing just feels like a setup, and they're not listening. And what I really want to say in the prayer, they're not going to want to eat when they hear it. So... It's just not fun. So... That's the same kind of thing that God is talking about Israel here. All that thinking, I'm trying to appeal to your thinking about our culture because it will help you understand what he's saying to these people. They did it in a different context, but humanity hasn't changed that much. right? Israel was unwilling to obey God. They expected Him to be merciful because they said, well, we got some good guys around here like Ezekiel or like Jeremiah. And their reasoning for their fourth excuse is they assumed history supported their assumptions. We said last week about how I mentioned that the history of Babylon's attacks on the city had always given the people reason to think that the leadership was the target because that's what had happened in the first two attacks. The Babylonian army had largely centered their attacks on the leadership. But, as I said, they had a selective memory about those events because they overlooked the fact that there were Jews in the city who were not leaders who were caught up in the disaster also. It wasn't that selective. It was just mostly to the leaders. 
And so I think here again on the flip side of this, of this misconception, I think they're drawing the wrong conclusion again from their history. And by that I mean this. I wonder if they weren't remembering the account of Abraham and Lot in the story about the destruction of Sodom. Because in that account, Abraham asked God to spare the city if there were ten righteous men found in the city, if you remember. And in the way that story is set up, it would seem to suggest that God saves cities if there are any righteous living within the city. Now, that's a supposition on my part, but what if they were thinking that? It certainly isn't out of question that that might have been in the back of their minds. But if that's what they thought, they again conveniently overlooked the outcome for the city of Sodom. While the Lord did fulfill His promise to Abraham, if you go back and study that story like we did years ago, you'll notice God does everything He said He was going to do. There's no change in plan. But at the end of the day, Lot and his family are saved, the righteous, and the city of Sodom is destroyed and all the ungodly with it. Only those who were willing to obey the voice of the Lord concerning his need to escape, which was sent through those messenger angels, only those people were actually able to escape judgment. The righteous man who lived in the city, in the end, received escape, and the unrighteous who lived in the city received judgment. That's exactly what the Lord has said through Ezekiel that's going to happen again. There's no change in plan. But they had perhaps assumed that God could work that way for their behalf. So in Jerusalem's case, the city is going to be judged. Nothing's going to stop it. God didn't offer any options. You notice in none of the warnings that we've seen so far from Ezekiel, has God put any kind of or in the statements. The only thing he said is if you repent individually, then you can escape the death that will come upon the city. You'll still be taken and changed. You'll still go into exile, but you'll live there. You remember those judgments? This die has been cast, in other words. The people have violated the covenant. So the Lord is giving warning after warning after warning to them that he's about to do the very thing he's promised to do. I think that's a remarkable amount of mercy all on its own, if you think about it. There was no requirement in the covenant to give any warnings, but he's doing it. And he's asking them to repent, and he's asking them to save themselves. He's told them how to survive the attack, and he said, if you will not repent, then you will not survive. And he keeps repeating it. In that way, the Lord is both faithful to his promise, and he's being merciful to his people. Despite his patience, despite his mercy, what are they doing? They just continue giving excuses for why they can ignore all the warnings. I want you to remember this pattern anytime you reflect back on this part of the Bible. He is being so merciful here. He's being so patient. And he is speaking to his people. He's sending them prophets who are talking at length, who are laying on their side for a year, you know, doing really dramatic things to get their attention. And none of that was a requirement of the law. They've had hundreds of years to disobey this covenant before he's acted against them. That's what a good father does. A good father keeps his word while looking for every opportunity to show mercy and grace. Working those two things together is important. When my kids used to get into trouble, or my wife and I had to discipline them, you know, kids do this. Sometimes they'd ask you to overlook their mistake, right? They kind of throw themselves on the mercy of the court, but it's, it's in this sense of don't do what you said you were going to do when you told me ahead of time that if I made this mistake, you would do this. Can we just forget you ever said, you know, that's what they're asking you to do, right? They want to avoid the punishment, which is natural. We know that. But as a parent, you've got to balance maintaining respect for your authority with being merciful and showing grace when you can. So what I would try to tell my kids from time to time is, you did the wrong thing, and now you're asking me to do the wrong thing. I would do the right thing here by disciplining you. You can't expect me to do the wrong thing also. How is that advancing the cause of rightness in this situation, right? So... 
I'm looking for an opportunity any way I can to show mercy or grace, but I'm looking for it in the context of repentance, aren't we? If there's no repentance, what's our response going to be? Follow through with the discipline. Why wouldn't you? But if there is some degree of repentance, then the mercy that you show would be in some way related to that. In other words, more repentance? Well, maybe more mercy. Less repentance? Less mercy. And kids are smart. They figure that out. First of all, they'll figure out not to make those mistakes. But when they do, they'll also figure out that a repentant heart is a fast road to a better result. In all cases, though, you've got to keep your word. Because if you are not willing to keep your word on the consequences, even to some minimum level, then your word quickly begins to mean nothing. And that's counter to the goal of godliness. And I think that's how we ought to see the Lord responding here to the nation of Israel. He cannot not keep His word. Because as I've said here in weeks past, if you want the Lord to stop keeping His word when it comes to things like this, because it makes us feel better, judgment not happening is always a nice thing to us. So I'd rather the Lord just forget He said He was going to do those things. That, that would be nice. Oh, but wait a minute. If He is the kind of God that can break His promises, well then why are you so confident He won't break His promise to take you to heaven because you believed in Jesus Christ? You know, that was a promise too. So He's either a covenant-keeping God or He's not. And if you want the covenant you have in Christ to be kept, then you can't go around demanding that He break the other ones. It doesn't work that way. And so we want a covenant-keeping God who is merciful and gives us grace. And God is all of that. But he's looking for the response in the heart that we would look for in our own children. And notice how the chapter ends, verse 22. He says, Yet behold, survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions, and then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought against it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions. For you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I did to it, declares the Lord God. So he says, look, in spite of everything the city has done, all the worshiping of idols, all the setting up of abominations, all the failing to repent, all of the excuses, nevertheless, I'm going to preserve survivors. In fact, he says, that the city would see the conduct, the people of Israel would see the conduct of, of these ones that survive, and that would bring comfort to them out of this calamity. And here's what he means. The Hebrew word there translated conduct and action. For example, in verse 23, they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions. In the English, it's three words, but in Hebrew, it's one word. It literally means evil actions. Evil actions. So the Lord is saying, when the exiles see... The kind of people who come up from Jerusalem and join them after the third attack, those that God allows to survive, when the people see what these evil people have been doing, then they will be comforted in what they've seen me do. What he's saying is, they're going to realize God let some pretty bad people off the hook. He let some people who had done some pretty evil things among us still survive nonetheless and join us in the exile. That will explain that the Lord is still on our side. He's still preserving His people. Though He brought the judgment He promised, it wasn't to destroy us because He saved some people that we would have thought might have been caught up in it. And He says the people of Israel will take comfort. And what I think He's saying is this. In that moment, they're going to get the big picture. Maybe for the first time. It's all going to dawn on them. Why they're there, why it had to happen. Oh, the covenant. Oh, yeah, our mistakes. Oh, yeah, I see now God is faithful. He's keeping us. Oh, but look, He didn't destroy us. He had mercy. He kept some of us alive. 
He's on our side. It's just we were the ones who walked away from him. And they'll appreciate his mercy and his kindness and his restraint in light of what they did. Moreover, the Lord says in verse 23, they'll see that my judgment wasn't in vain. And we talked about this last week, remember? The fact that this judgment changes the hearts of Israel so much that they cease in their rebellion of idolatry. They never again go back to it. They acknowledge their wicked past and they make amends. They forever commit to avoid idolatry for the rest of the history of Israel. We've never seen Israel go back to systematic idolatry since this time of history. And in that sense, it wasn't in vain. Notice earlier the Lord said that not even Noah, Daniel, or Job would be able to save even their own sons or daughters. Remember that statement? But notice now the Lord is making an intentional contrast. He says in verse 22, Oh, but I will save sons and daughters. Those, those three men that you hold in such high esteem, they can't save anyone but themselves. But I can save anyone. I can save their sons and daughters. By my mercy, I'll give you some of them in the remnant. So what Noah, Daniel, and Job could not do, God can do. Righteousness couldn't spare the guilty. Their righteousness couldn't spare the guilty. But a righteous God can spare the guilty by putting that guilt on someone else, namely his son. That's our relationship with God, too. I love the way the Lord ends this chapter. It's an allusion, I think, to what he does for all of us through Jesus Christ. We were not Israel. We didn't engage in idolatry the way they did. We've got our own sins. We don't have their sins, right? But your sins, my sins, they are just as unholy. They are just as deserving of judgment. If you're sitting back in your easy chair thinking about Israel and going, tsk, 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 what terrible people they were, take a moment and redirect that thought back to yourself because... What you and I do in our own preference of sin is no better. And it's just as likely to be judged if we didn't have Jesus. We too may have thought at some point in our past that we could escape judgment because we would find righteousness through our own work or through somebody else's, perhaps a parent or a spouse. Now we know better. Only God can save us. And that's what he's telling Israel. The Lord is prepared to do that for those who acknowledge their sin and accept the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. In the end, it is that person who is saved from judgment. And our mission, not only is knowing that, that's the start of our mission, but our mission is explaining that. And looking at the culture accurately so that we know where they're coming from is a part of making that conversation go well. Think about this, perhaps, as you have your own awkward Thanksgiving dinner moment, if you happen to have unbelieving family members. If the conversation turns to your faith, test their hearts a little first. Find out where they're coming from. And if you sense in them this assumption that they're going to be fine in the end because they're either good enough or they come from a good enough family or whatever they're basing their confidence in, pick away at that a little bit. Ask themselves, just how good is good? How good do you have to be? And when you get to the point that they're perhaps interested in the real answer, you'll give them the gospel. Maybe God will open a door for us this holiday season. That would be a great blessing. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Dear Father, um, first Father, we thank you for the mercy you've shown us in Jesus Christ, that by his work, not our own, we are made righteous. Thank you for the release of judgment and guilt and burden that comes with that knowledge. Thank you for the freedom that it gives us, the security that it gives us. Father, we know that there are many in our families, perhaps our friends, uh, co-workers, people we know who do not understand this, Father. And Whatever they're basing their future hopes in, if they have hope at all, Help us, Father, to show them that they have bet on the wrong thing, that they have their confidence in the wrong place. Perhaps at a dinner table this coming week or 
During the holiday period, Father, we'd have a chance perhaps to talk to some of these that we know and care for. And in the conversations, Father, you'd direct our hearts so that we might present the truth in the right way, in a loving way, informed from Scripture, able to teach so that they will see it for themselves. And not just this holiday, Father, but for all time as we seek to serve you in the days we have on this earth. Give us that heart that wants to preach through our life first and our words second. And give us, Father, a a confidence that we can share things like this with others. Even if we don't have all the answers, you do. And you can speak through us. And in that way, Father, give us boldness. We pray again, Father, that you would protect those on the mission field and those who are struggling this season, Father. Give them a peace that will get them through these times and to whatever you have in front of them. And, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.